The Courage to Lead, episode 152. You're listening to the IB4E Coaching Podcast. Brought to you by IB4E Coaching, business coaching for executives, entrepreneurs, and small business professionals. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com. Hey, Coach Harlan here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you guys are having an exceptional week. I'm having a great week, and I'm excited to introduce you to my guest today. Please help me welcome Mark Hirschberg. Mark Hirschberg is the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Educated at MIT, Mark has spent his career launching and fixing new ventures as startups, Fortune 500s, and academia. Mark has developed new software languages, online marketplaces, new authentication systems, and tracked criminals and terrorists on the dark web. He helped create the Undergraduate Practice Opportunities Program, MIT's Career Success Accelerator, where he's taught for 20 years. Mark also serves on the board of nonprofits, Techie Youth, and Plant a Million Corals. Uh, Mark was one of the top-ranked ballroom dancers. Now lives in New York City, where he's known for his social gatherings, including his annual Halloween party, as well as as his diverse cufflink collection. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, this is great. I, I finally meet somebody else who really likes cufflinks. How many different sets do you have? I have over 400 pairs of cufflinks. Wow. Every day of the year, I can wear a different pair. That is excellent. Yeah, you know, cufflinks have kind of gone out of style, but I love wearing cufflinks. I don't know what it is about it, but yeah, when I get dressed up. They let you do something kind of creative. And now my cufflinks, most of what I have, 98% fall into the category that people would call novelty cufflinks. Okay. So I have a few, the knot, the square, the standard boring stuff. Sure. But my cufflinks... Their food, their drinks, their transportation, their animals. So, for example, later tonight, I'm going to Carnegie Hall. I will wear one of my many music cufflinks, maybe an instrument, maybe some notes. And so I'll wear something appropriate to whatever I'm doing that day. Excellent. Very cool. Yeah, I've got a pair of Batman cufflinks. And, and I have some that are there. They move, you know, so they're kinetic. So as you move, they move. And that draws attention. So I think that's kind of cool. <laughs> Very interesting. All right. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about all that stuff, how you got your start. We're going to talk about your book um, and teaching at MIT, which is huge. So I definitely want to get into all the details there. But before we get started, I've got some questions that I ask every one of my guests. Uh, Listeners know these are the questions asked on the TV show Inside the Actor Studio, where the host James Lipton asks these questions of his Hollywood guests from TV, film, and stage. And I figure if they're good enough for the Hollywood elite, they're certainly good enough for my guests. So Mark, if you're ready, I've got 10 questions for you, sir. I'm good to go. All right. Question number one, what is your favorite word? I would think my favorite word is syzygy. S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. Because it has three Ys. I believe it's the only English word to have three Ys in it. That's excellent. Can you use it in a sentence? Bob created a syzygy for his science class. No help. (laughs) A syzygy, if I remember correctly, it is a representation of the solar system. Excellent. Although I'm only 95% sure because it's been decades since I learned it. (laughs) 95 cent works for me. That's good. All right. Favorite word. What is your least favorite word? 
That's a good question. I, I don't think I've thought about that. And as a writer, you'd think I would do that, though maybe it's just because it's so, it's my least favorite. I don't even think about it. I try not to use it. Probably the word like, and specifically the use as a oh, disfluency, yes. where like, you know how it's like a word that just like pops into sentences. Drives me nuts. And I'm guilty of that myself. All right. Question three, what turns you on? Intellectual challenge. I just love interesting problems and trying to solve them. Excellent. What turns you off? Lack of integrity. Just people who don't have integrity. Hypocrisy is right up there with that. It just more than other maybe vices or problems, it really irks me. I'm with you on that. All right. What sound or noise do you love? Big thunderstorms, mm. just like the pouring, driving rain and thunder and lightning and being inside and able to watch it from the comfort of my home. Exactly. All right. What sound or noise do you hate? Nails on a blackboard. All right, question seven. What is your favorite curse word? I don't really curse. I excised that from my language many years ago, but probably if I had to pick one, probably schmuck, which is a Yiddish word. And it's because it's technically a curse word, but it's also, it's not quite at the level of George Carlin's seven Seven words, for example. It just has a certain... You say schmuck, there's just a, a implied connotation beyond the definition of the word that I think is, is well understood. Perfect. All right. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would have liked to have been a lawyer, just didn't have time to fit in. I never got my PhD in physics. That would have been fun. There are reasons I chose not to do it but there are certain things I probably missed from doing it. Mm. I chose not to become a professional ballroom dancer. So there's a couple different things. If I had multiple lifetimes, I might pursue. All right. What profession would you not like to do? Medicine. My father is a doctor and I just never liked opening up the body, thinking about what's inside. I want to treat it like a black (laughs) box. I don't want to deal with the blood and other parts to it. Absolutely. All right. Final question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Welcome to heaven. Two drink minimum. <laughs> I, you know, I, I would be happy with just welcome to heaven. You made it. That's right. Yeah. Any, anything short of that is a little concerning. Yes. Yeah. Once, once you've got that, everything else is just gravy. Good job. All right, Mark, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about your early career, how you got to MIT, uh, talk about your book, um, some of the courses you're teaching, uh, hunting down terrorists on the black web. Definitely want to talk about that. So we'll talk about all of that and more right after this. So listeners, stick with us. 
Imagine having a trusted group of CEOs at your disposal. Imagine having your very own peer advisory team who could work you through the problems and questions in your business before you had to make those difficult decisions. Imagine you had a group of advisors that had your back and met for the sole purpose of making you successful in your business. What would you be able to accomplish then? Well, you don't have to imagine anymore. You can have that and more when you join my Business Success Mastermind Group. Join my Business Success Mastermind Group today. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. And I'm back. My guest, Mark Hirschberg. Mark, thanks again for agreeing to be on the podcast. This is excellent. So uh, before the break, we talked about um, you helped track down terrorists on the dark web. How do you do that? What, what, What was that all about? I have a graduate degree in cybersecurity, specifically in cryptography. Mm. Now that's often used to authenticate people or to encrypt your data. So your credit card is safe online, for example. At this particular company where I was a CTO, I've done multiple cybersecurity companies. This one we did intelligence gathering. Mm. So think about undercover agents. The FBI or the police send someone into a gang or the mob and figure out, okay, what are they doing? And they can pass that back to police who can then be prepared for the crimes. We did something similar, but on the dark web. Now, first, we were not physically there. It was a lot safer. We're not the level of those who really risk their lives every day. But we had to infiltrate the online nefarious communities. And once we were in, we had certain techniques to suck down the intelligence. And once we had that, we can build up this large collection of intelligence that would get used by our customers. Some were corporate, some were different government organizations, and they could understand who is coming at us, when, where, how, and why, and that helped them bear marshal their defenses. Wow. That is awesome. And when was that? Was that recently or is it an ongoing type thing? That was about six years ago. I was at that company. Wow. Very cool. Good stuff. So MIT is huge and stuff, but tell me about how you got started. I mean, you had this amazing career. Um, Where did you grow up? What led you to MIT? I grew up outside of New York, Chicago, New Jersey. I have two wonderful parents. My dad is a retired doctor. My mom's a retired teacher. So education was always emphasized in our home. I love learning. I love math and science. And when I was 12, I first heard about MIT. And my mom was telling me about a Reader's Digest article talking about the hacks where MIT would do pranks, either on campus or sometimes against Harvard, which was an easy target. (laughs) Uh, Wow, that sounds so cool. And that's the moment I knew I wanted to go to MIT. Nice. And so uh, what did you study when when you went there? As an undergrad, I double majored in physics and then in electrical engineering and computer science. I minored in political science. Then I stayed and did my master's degree in cryptography, which is a branch of computer science and mathematics. Wow. And that's what led to this varied career helping these different organizations. Very cool. When I came out of MIT, I was at a crossroads because back then it was common to go to what was big tech then, which was IBM and Microsoft, this is back in the 90s, or go to Wall Street and do finance or go into consulting. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do any of that. So I wound up at a small startup. A startup wasn't a common thing back then. 
And I wound up there just by process of elimination. So I didn't really have direction or plans like, well, I guess I'll do this. Now that turned out to be the right path for me. I really fit in well at a startup. And what I realized early on as I was there, I said, okay, this is interesting, but I knew I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer. And as I sat to think about what that meant, because lots of people say, oh, I want to be this, I want to do that. Whether it's start your own company or want to become a vice president, they have this plan or really rather a goal, but not a concrete plan to get there. And I am inherently a planner. So I said, okay, I want to be a CTO. What do I need to do to get there? And I realized there were all these skills that I needed beyond engineering mm-hmm. because the CTO isn't always the best engineer. The head of sales isn't always the best salesperson, the CFO, True. not the best accountant. You need leadership, networking, negotiating, team building, communicating, all these other skills no one teaches you. So I realized I had to develop these skills in myself. And as I created that path for me, I realized these skills are not just for executives and founders. They are for everyone, everyone up and down the corporate hierarchy. So I began to upskill my team. Now, we didn't have great podcasts like this back then, so it's a little harder. And as I was developing up my team, MIT had done some research. They were surveying companies and companies said, these are the skills we want not just for MIT people or engineers, not just for recent college grads. These are universal skills. And other surveys by other universities found the same thing. So MIT said, we want to create a program to instill these skills into our students. When I heard about that, I reached out. I said, hey, I've got some content I've developed. I'm happy to share. I thought I'd just give them the content. But instead, they said, you know what? We would love if you can help us develop some of this material because you've been doing it. So I helped to design some of the class. And then they asked me to co-teach along with the professors, myself and other people like me. So that led me to this parallel career. I build tech startups, but I've also been teaching at MIT and elsewhere. And that led to the book and the speaking and the app. Nice. So that was the career success accelerator program that you helped put together and, and teach there. Exactly. That was, that's the one. Very cool. Awesome. And now the book, The Career Toolkit, Essentials for Success, no one taught you. And that is so true. There are so many things that, uh, and I've talked to lawyers, doctors, everybody, they come out of school knowing their craft, but they don't have the leadership skills. They don't know how to run a, a business office. They don't know how to hire and manage, maintain, you know, a crew and stuff. Um, so I think that's definitely needed. So tell me about the book. How did that, that came out of all of this research you were doing? For years. I had been encouraging the program, we have to put this content out there. We need to get into other universities. We need to put online. MIT pioneered free online courseware where we put our content online. And the program, for various reasons, we didn't have the capacity to do that. Now, I also encouraged the program. I said, well, we also need to give notes to our students. This is not a lecture-based class. We don't just lecture out the students. It's hands-on. They do things, which is a great way to learn this but means they also don't take a lot of notes. And I know at the end of each class, as soon as the final was done, all that information just fell out of my head. So it's like, we, we need to create some content to give to our students or give to other people, but the program just didn't have time to do that. So I was traveling a lot in 2019 on a lot of flights, spending a lot of time in hotels. I thought, let me write up some notes. And I really thought I was writing maybe 20 pages of notes. Well, 20 pages became 40, became 80. And once it passed 100, I said, you know, I think this is a book. And so I 
put myself down that path and I turned it into the book. Excellent. So give me some of the insights out of your book. What are the, the main takeaways? There are 10 chapters in three sections. And these are not ones Mark just said, oh, I think this is interesting. This again comes from research at MIT and elsewhere about the skills that they want. The 10 chapters are section one careers, how to create and execute a career plan. Whether you're a founder or inside a company, how do you advance your own skill set to be where you want to be five, 10, 20 years down the road? Chapter two, working effectively, understanding corporate culture, managing your manager. Chapter three is interviewing, not as a candidate. There's lots of material like that, right. but as the person hiring, because we never teach anyone how to do that. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. That. Yes. I, I always like it to saying to your 16 year old, okay, you're old enough. You've seen me drive before. So here are the keys to the car. Best of luck to you. Good luck. Godspeed. <laughs> that's what, well, you've been interviewed before, I know, because I interviewed you. So here are the keys to the interview room. Good luck. It's horrible. Wow. Yeah. The second section, leadership management. We have a chapter on the essence of leadership and then management. We look at the people side of it and the process side of it. Then the third section, interpersonal dynamics. It covers communication, networking, negotiations, and ethics. And each chapter has a mental shift, how to look at in a different way that's not normally taught, and then concrete, actionable things you can do to execute and develop the skill. Yes. Very cool. I'm all about planning. I'm a private pilot. So I put together a flight plan. Where am I now? Where do I want to be? How do I plan to get there? And what are the checkpoints so I can measure my progress along the way? I don't think they teach that enough in schools, how to put together a plan. They don't. And obviously as a pilot, you, you can't just get on the plane and wander around. You could. <laughs> it may not work out well. Yes. Same thing on a road trip. Even if we think about projects at work, imagine if your CEO came to you and she said, okay, here's a really big project. I'm putting you in charge. You're going to spend the next two years. And this is what you need to produce at the end of two years. Do you say, okay, I got it. Tell you what, I'll see you in two years. Cross your fingers. Hope we get there. <laughs> that would not be acceptable. You right. need to create a plan, a project plan, a timeline, a budget. You need to have check-ins and say, are we on plan? Are we off? Or you know you're going to have to adjust the plan. There's no way you do a two-year project without having a plan. And yet for your career, which is much longer than two years, yeah. no plan. I'll just wing it. I'll just yeah. hope. That is a <laughs> terrible way to try and achieve success. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you talk about uh, that section on the essence of leadership. I had someone ask me the other day, they were, somebody told them that they didn't have leadership presence, executive presence. What exactly is executive presence and how do you, people, HR uh, professionals say that, you know, 80% of them can spot executive presence or the absence of executive presence. But when you ask them to define it, less than 50% could define what they thought it was. What is executive presence and how do you get that? Executive presence is people's perception of you. Now, some of that might be your reputation precedes you. I talk about this in the latter part of the book, how to build up your personal brand and reputation. Okay. But some of it is just when you walk into a room and people have never seen you before, 
what do they see? What's their sense, whether it's in that first second or after listening to you for two minutes, how are you perceived? Mm. And they are looking for certain characteristics. Now, the best book on that would be The Charisma Myth by my friend Olivia Fox Caban, who actually in her book breaks down the elements of charisma and how you can actually develop and learn to be charismatic. All these skills, by the way, whether it's leadership or networking or negotiating in my book or charisma in her book, all of these are learnable, just like you can learn golf or accounting. You just have to understand the principles and practice to develop the skills. So executive presence is how you come off. There's no one magic formula. And in fact, in my book, there's a section called the myth of the alpha male in which I argue many people actually look for wrong signals. For example, they look for who has that booming voice. who will just shout, let's get this done. Like, oh, that person sounds like a leader, right? Well, they may or may not be a leader, but the booming voice isn't what makes them a leader. And we right. confuse those signals for leadership. Absolutely. Yeah. Could, um, I was a management consultant for 30 years, organizational change management. We would go into companies, we'd be there when they're having their big town hall meetings to explain what the change was that was coming in, whatever it happened to be. We would always stand on the periphery looking at the crowd, right? That was there because the leader isn't necessarily the person up front talking. A lot of times that leader is one of the employees that everybody's looking to. If they see that person smiling and nodding, then they figure, okay, this change is going to be good and we're okay with it. But if that person was sat back with their arms crossed, scowling, everybody would start getting afraid and want to push back or resist. So yeah, you're right. It's not the booming voice. It's not the, the tallest person that walks into the room. It's not the best dressed person that walks into the room. It's it's their character. It's the, the, um, they embody confidence, right? Um, it's their, their speech pattern, I think, is another way to do it. And listening. Because you get some people that are so nervous, they talk constantly. Yes. A real leader takes in all the information, thinks before they respond, right? Things like that. So there, yeah, there are a lot of different characteristics that make that up, I think. In Olivia's book, she even talks about things such as speed, that the more senior you are, the more executive, the slower you move. You don't have to move quickly. In fact, I remember there's that scene in Goodfellas where uh, he's talking about the mob boss. And he said, Polly moved slowly because he didn't have to move for anyone. Yeah. And you see that. You see that, okay, I'm the leader. I'm just going to walk in at my pace. Now, again, that can be a misleading signal and people think, oh, look, look at the speed. That person's a leader. Well, that doesn't make the person the leader. So we have to be careful not to misread the signals, but they do correlate in, in some, probably many cases. Yeah. Yeah. It can't, it's not just one thing. You're right. It's a combination of different things. Exactly what it is. Um, so working with leaders, what do you look for in a leader? It depends on the particular situation. And so we have to remember that there's no one leader who's necessarily right for every circumstance, Okay. particularly when we hire leaders. In fact, I have, after we record this podcast, I have a conversation with one of the nonprofits. We're looking for new board members and we're going to have to discuss what are we looking for? What mm -hmm. are the attributes? What are the things we need? 
when you think about your business, there's a difference in the type of leader you need who's just, well, the business is doing well. We've been growing 5% a year. Now we just need a new leader in this role or for the company, keep it going. That's different than we need to get that 40% annual growth that I see in some of the startups I'm with, like the real change that's going to be chaotic. And we need a leader just to make sure the ship doesn't tip over. That's different than we've had a really bad couple quarters or years. The team's demoralized. We keep canceling projects. People are saying, oh, I feel like I'm wasting my time here. There's no trust between leadership and the team. You need a different type of leader in that situation. Co-located versus a distributed team, again, different attributes. So it really depends on the circumstance. It's almost like saying, which restaurant do you like? I love the pizza place on the corner. I love the good steakhouse. I just generally don't decide between the two. I'm in the mood for one versus the other based on my needs. Yeah. Very cool. Um, thinking back over your career, is there somebody that you worked with or worked for they would say was a, an exceptional leader? I've been lucky to work with some really good people who each had different great attributes. Charles Leiserson, a professor at MIT, who I worked with, he was actually my professor as an undergrad. And then we helped design parts of the undergraduate practice opportunities program, the success accelerator we mentioned. Mm -hmm. He is a man of deep wisdom, insight, and passion for helping others. In addition to just incredibly brilliant. George Cole, who I worked with at Sears, he really knew how to work in a large corporate bureaucracy and how to get things done. John Christensen, my first boss when I was back at Painted Word, he taught me about caring about people. I had an image of a boss that came out of growing up watching 80s TV. Like, oh, the boss is just that mean person and you just try not to piss him off. Right. But John was, was really caring. I remember I, I made the same mistake twice. And the second time he called me, I thought, okay, now he's really going to be pissed. Cause he, you know, once he said, Hey, you know, here's what you did. Don't do this again. I did it again. Mm. Instead of yelling at me, he just sat me down. He said, you know, let's, we talked about this. Let's try to do better. And he was a guy where I just really wanted to do my best for him. So I've, I've had lots of great leaders. I've also had some who lacked integrity and did unethical things, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. I've had some amazing people and you learn little bits and pieces from each one and you try to be better because it's not all about, I, I remember working at Lockheed Aircraft, you know, and you see somebody like lean across the table and grab somebody by the lapels and scream at them and shake them. That's not management. <laughs> That's not yeah. leadership, you know? So Interesting. Um, so the podcast is about courage. Um, where did you find the courage to step out of the nine to five comfort zone to create your own success? Where did you find the courage to overcome uh, different setbacks? Um, talking about writing a book, writing a book can be scary for some people. Was that yeah. scary for you? And where did you find the courage to, to write the book? That was not scary for me in that this is something I've been passionate about for years. For two decades, I've been teaching this. We've been refining it. One of the great things about writing about what you've been teaching 
is I know how people respond to it. I know what works, what doesn't. Yes. Well, if I play it this way, I get confused looks, but that way, even things I, this is a common comment I get. You write something in the book and then I have a question, but when I flip the page, you've answered it. Well, that's not magic. That's because I've been doing this for so long. So for me, the book wasn't a big problem. And I often get asked, how long did it take you to write it? Mm -hmm. I wrote it in about four months. Wow. But the caveat is I've taught it for 20 years. So it was right. just four months to extract the knowledge. Yeah. But what really, I think, allowed me to do this and to not have fear is the fact that I've been doing startups my whole career. I don't know when I join a company, will they be around in two years? Maybe I don't know if yeah. they'll be around in one year. I've had a lot of volatility. I've also had periods where I've said, okay, well, that startup didn't work for whatever reason. And here I am unemployed. Well, there are some job offers I have, but they're not right. So I'm going to turn them down. I'm going to sit there and watch my bank account go down, hmm. which is very scary. Sure. At certain periods, like during the Great Recession, yeah. but I'm going to hold out for something better. I just don't know when it's coming. And what was able to give me the strength to do that is the fact that I had a plan. Because if you don't have a plan to go, oh my God, I don't have a job. My right. bank account's going down. I need something, okay, desperate, whatever. Oh, good, you'll hire me. Great, I'll take it. Right. But by having the plan, having the discipline, you can say, okay, I know down the road there's likely to be something better. I have a sense of what the market's like. Think about on your projects, when, for example, your project slips, someone experienced could just panic. Oh my God, we're behind and everyone sure. all hands on deck and you can't go home before midnight. Someone who's been around says, okay, project slipped. We knew it was going to happen. This happens yeah. to all projects. So we've only slipped 2%. Hey, that's not bad. And we're going to stay disciplined. And yes, you can leave at five or six of the normal time and we'll just adjust as we go. So by having a plan and having the discipline to stick to it, you're not going to make these irrational knee-jerk mistakes, whether you go out on your own or start a book or do some risky initiative. Now, it doesn't mean, by the way, your plan can never change. Oh, no. It <laughs> absolutely, sure. The goal doesn't change, right? The goal doesn't change your plan. You change sometimes. Well, but a lot of times you'll say, this is, this is where I want to end up. Yes. The, the flight analogy, right? Um, this is where I want to end up. If something happens, there's a storm here. I can go around the storm. I haven't changed that, right? Or if I have to land and wait, I'm just going to wait until the storm passes, then get back on track, you know? But it's exactly. having those options, knowing where you are and what you can and can't do and, and how you can work around those things. Um, I tell the story a lot uh, as a, a pilot, you know, student pilot. We were up in the air with my flight instructor, 7,000, 8,000 feet in the air. And he says, what's that off your left wing? And I looked out the windscreen. I don't see anything. It's perfectly clear day. There's nothing out there. While I was distracted, he pulled the throttle out. So the engine kind of went into neutral. And if you've ever been in those small planes, you know how loud those can be. Well, it was deadly silent. And because our forward momentum slowed down, I was lifted out of my seat just a little bit, just enough to know, right? And I panicked. And he goes, you just lost your engine. What are you going to do now? Well, you can't, like you said, you can't just cover your eyes and scream and hope for the best. You have to maintain, you have to fly that airplane. You have to figure out where am I? What can I do? How do I get out of this particular situation? Having the plan, knowing where you are during that plan, knowing what your capabilities are and always improving your capabilities, give you those options to, to make those different decisions. 
Eisenhower famously said, plans are worthless, but planning is everything. Yeah. And it's not that your plan is going to be perfect because it will be imperfect and we'll have to really? change. But by having gone through that process, you'll understand your options. You know, okay, if the engine goes out, here are two, three, four different things I can try to get back to a improved situation. Right. Absolutely. So yeah, I think the plan is definitely something that teaching, we need to teach that more. Have a plan, know what you're going to do, know what you're going to do if things go wrong, you know, have those options available to you. Without that plan, you don't have those options. So I'm glad that's that's the, the first part of your book. I think that's excellent. Very and cool. Really, the book is written, you can jump to any chapter. You can buy the book and go, I'm going right to chapter nine. I have to get better at negotiating and just read chapter nine without anything else. So we put chapter one there, career planning, because it's a good place to start. And then you say, you know, for my career, I want to get better at networking. That's chapter eight and interviewing chapter three. So this is my path through the book, right. which isn't always linear. Of course, you can even skip chapter one. <laughs> but don't, because it's important. Um, good stuff. So do you have people working for you right now? Do you have at the moment, at this particular moment we're recording, I have my team of engineers developing the Brain Bump app, which mm -hmm. is a way to better retain what we hear in podcasts, what we read in books or classes. And then I'm waiting on funding. I'm working with a guy I had worked with before, we are getting funding for a new venture we're working on. And then I've got some side projects where I'm consulting. At those, I don't have people working for me. Yeah. I'm just consulting to them. But through your career, you've had, you've had employees or, or teams working with you and stuff like that. If I was to bump into any of those folks on the road and ask them about your leadership style, what would they tell me? What kind of leader are you? That's a great question. And this is something we should all know about ourselves. And before I answer, I'll tell you when I join a company and I show up, I've been hired, I'm sitting down with my team for the first time. Oh, hi, my name is Mark. Here's my background. I also talk about my leadership style, how I lead and what my expectations are. And I talk about this a bit in chapter two in the book. One of the things I really value is that someone can and should always express their opinion. I value disagreement, especially if they're disagreeing with me. And when I hire people, I, by the way, I also tell this when someone joins because I've hired them, I give them the same background. I say, you should always speak your mind. We want to have ideas free flowing, debate the ideas, never the person. Say, yes. I don't think your idea is good. I'd never say, I don't think you're good. Right. So respect the person, but challenge the idea, and especially challenge mine. I know I am not the smartest person in the room in every single case. Maybe I'm better at one thing, but they're better at other things. And I want those ideas to come forward. So I take a, an approach of just getting all the voices to the table. Excellent. Wasn't it, was it Kennedy that asked at, at a meeting, do, are, are there any objections? And nobody in the room had any objections. He said, well, let's wait and get back together next week so you guys have time to think about, you know, the because that's where you learn, right? The, the errors in your, your plan, the, the weak points in your plan, you have to have those people to say, hey, have you thought of this or can't we do this a different way? Sometimes with my team, especially when we're doing complex technical design, so I'll architect our systems and we'll have the whiteboard and we'll have all the diagrams. And after we've been talking about this for a while, I'll sometimes say to my team, there's a flaw here. We missed something. 
who knows what it is. I don't see any flaw, but by asking that question, sometimes I go, oh, wait, let me look. Oh, right here. Sometimes we look and go, nope, I don't see it. And after everyone's puzzled for about two minutes ago, yeah, I don't see it either. I just want to see if they find one. But right, you you take that contrarian view. Yes. What's wrong with this? What's the objection? Yeah. Poke holes in my idea, right? That's the only way we're going to get this. So tell me about the brain bump. What is that? So when I did my book, I recognized that the problem with books is you read a book, you say, okay, well, this is great, but then you forget all two weeks later. Mm-hmm. That's not helpful to you. Right. How do we make it more useful? So I created for my book, first I created the Career Toolkit app. So it has all the highlights from the book. It's a free app from the Apple and Android store. Okay. And you can use it one of two ways. Either you can open the app and go to specific tips. Maybe, for example, you're going into a networking event. Oh, what were all those networking tips? Let me open it up, pull it up, and swipe through all those tips. Or you can set, so once a day, say right as you go into the office each morning, you get a push notification. You don't mm-hmm. even have to open the app more than once a month, just so we know you're active. And there you go, push and go, all right, that's a good tip, swipe, done. This uses the technique of space repetition, takes you only two seconds a day to look at the particular reminder. And that's it, it's going to help you retain this. So I built that for my book. It's been doing very well. And other authors said, I want this too. Now, originally authors wanted their own branded version, but one of the challenges is as I go on shows like this at the end where you ask, how can people get in touch with you? I'll say, oh, go to my website, oh, and buy the book. Oh, and download the app and follow me on social media. And I'm going to give you so many things to do. So downloading the app is probably low on the list. And so for authors trying to remind people also download the app, it, it's hard. It's another thing you have to promote. So we recognized the benefit is to create a combined, a universal app. Think of it like a Kindle. A Kindle can download any book into it. Right. So we created BrainBump and BrainBump will be out at the end of April. So by the time this is out, it should be live. It's from Cognosco Media. And what BrainBump does is you download completely free app, you download it, there will be sets of content from authors and their books, authors and their blogs, podcasters and their podcasts, and lecturers and their classes. And you can go in and say, oh, I want Mark's book. I want James' podcast. I want Alex's blog. You add those to your library, and then you're going to get the tips, the highlights from their pieces of content. Now, you can use this either to say, I read Mark's book. I want to help remember it. Or maybe, hey, Mark's book sounds interesting, but I want to check it out before I buy it. Or before I listen to this podcast episode, oh, that was a really interesting idea. Let me go now listen to that whole episode. And so that's how it works. It lets you either better retain the content or discover new content. Excellent. And those tips and highlights, are those uh, the author choosing those or? It's the author choosing them. Okay. We, we don't pick and the author controls the content and artificial intelligence isn't yet good enough to say, say here's all the automated yeah. pieces. So the author can decide what's the highlight. And just as, for example, with this podcast, you're going to put out certain audio clips. Hey, here's a, a really great idea Mark put forth. Listen to the episode to get more. That's what you're going to get in this Excellent. app. Very cool. All right. I will definitely be looking forward to that because you're right. I, I have a Kindle. It's bursting at the seams with all the books that I've read. I've highlighted all the things I want to remember. 
I can barely remember the titles of the books or the authors of the books. So you never go back to your notes. No, no, that's so definitely going to help for you. <laughs> Very good. I could use that. All right. Very cool. Well, Hey, before we wrap this up, you were a top ranked ballroom dancer. So what was your, what was your specialty? Pasa doble, foxtrot, quick set, rumba, tango, waltz, now, to give people context, there are four different ballroom styles with okay. 19 dances, five, 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 and four, the four different styles. There's international standard that has waltz and tango, and that's where the guys are in the tail suits and women in the ball gown. Right. There's American smooth, which looks the same and has similar dances, but in international standard, you have to stay in closed hold. The woman is always in the man's arms. Right. In American, you can be side by side, you can be apart, you can do one hand hold. That's what you see Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dance. Got it. Okay. Then there's international Latin. That's in the tight outfits and the cha-cha and the samba. And then American rhythm, swing and mambo and those. So you've got the international, the American and the Latin and the, um, and the ballroom. I was one of the rare people who, who competed in all four styles. Wow. That if I am going to be spending six hours driving each way to a competition, if I'm going to spend my weekend there, I want to spend as much time on the ballroom floor as possible. Sure. Most people compete in one or maybe two of those styles. Mm -hmm. I did in all four. Wow. So lots of training, but it was worth it. Now, my best style was American smooth, okay. which is, that's the one with only four, which is American waltz, tango, foxtrot, and Viennese waltz. And I just love that style. Excellent. My wife is a big fan of the TV shows where you can watch the dancers and it's just amazing what they can do. So hats off to you. Very good. Very cool. Well, Mark, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. If people want to get in touch with you, I know you've got all these different websites and books and everything like that. I will try to have as many of those links as I can in the show notes, but how can they get in touch with you? What's your website? You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com, and there you can learn more about the Career Toolkit book. You can get in touch with me, follow me on social media. You can download that free app I mentioned. We have links to the Android and iPhone stores. There's also a whole resources page where we've got free resources you can download or links to other free resources online. Now, all of that is at thecareertoolkitbook.com. For the Brain Bump app, if you go to cognoscomedia.com, C-O-G-N-O-S-C-O media.com, there you can learn about the Brain Bump app and we'll have links to the Android and iPhone stores for that. By the way, if anyone is thinking of writing a book, there's also a resources section with a bunch of resources for anyone writing a book. So all of that's at cognoscomedia.com. Excellent, very cool. And you are active on uh, LinkedIn? I am on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And so every day I post about different podcasts I've been on, my own blog posts, other content I put out. So feel free to follow me on any and all of those. Excellent. All right. I will have those links in the show notes for everybody. Mark, thanks again for being here. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on the show. It's fun. All right, listeners, hope you guys are taking a lot of notes, a lot of good information here. Uh, share this episode with your family, friends, and colleagues. And stick around because there's always more coming. That's it for me, Coach Harlan saying so long for now.